Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and to ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Paul Sheridan and I'm here with my colleague and co-host Ben Fern. I'm very excited to be here, Paul. Got a lot of history here. OB. It's an OB, everybody. It is. It's the first time we've been uh, open broadcast on location, not just in Church House. Not just in Church House. And we are in front of the grave or the tomb or whatever we're going to call it of Sir Nathaniel Kreswick. Kreswick? I don't honestly know. I'm sorry. You you might have researched it before we got here. (laughs) Vicar of the parish. Although you had the Wikipedia page, sometimes it has the phonetic symbols of... So let's blame Paul, I think. Yeah. Yes, than... I think so, yeah. We're going to go with Kresik, I think. And uh, the co-founder of Sheffield FC in 1857, the world's oldest football club. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. It's incredible. It is. For football buffs like ourselves... It's a pilgrimage, if I'm allowed to use that word. Oh, hello. Or is that a bit too uh, improper? To... No, I think we'll go with pilgrimage, because this is the start, I think, of the Sheffield sort of football walk. That's right. There's a, there's an app. Um, I think it's called the Home of Football. It is called that, yeah. Um, so we do occasionally get people coming along and starting the walk from oh, here. That's fantastic. Um, um, so yeah, this is the start of, of of the walk. You can go all the way around Sheffield. Well, all the football places around Sheffield. So he was involved with football, and I read with with cricket as well. Sheffield Cricket Club, and also golf as well. There's a there's a a golf course out near Rotherham Way which held Ryder Cup years and years and years ago and I think he was one of the first founders of that so a great sporting icon but it's Healy Parish Church where we are which we'll mention again in a minute had a foot what was one of the early football clubs as well in Mearsbrook. Yes that's right well um, so I believe Healy Parish Church was the first church to ever set up its own football club in the 1860s Um, and um, they played in the I think they won the Senior League Cup. Yeah, say it with more confidence. They won the Senior won. League. <laughs> Sorry, I sh- I'm not a massive football buff myself. I'm learning. I kind of think I ought to know these things now I'm here at Healy. Um, yeah, and they played in the FA Cup in the 1880s, believe it or not. Yeah, <laughs> How many church football London, clubs can say that? The Football Association was set up. It was all coming from Sheffield around here, wasn't it? Definitely. And an interesting thing is that... Um, we used to go after football on a Wednesday, so I play football in Drumfield, but Sheffield FC's current home is there next to the pub there. But it is moving back into Sheffield Yeah, itself. by transport there on the on the roundabout, yeah. near where you two live as well. Yes, part of the Woodseats Mafia. So the other voice you can hear, we will formally introduce her properly when we go back inside, is of course the Reverend Amy Hall. He's very kindly given us a, a quick tour here of this, um, well, fascinating historical site. Yeah, so come and visit Healy Parish Church. Yeah. Don't ha- not only open on a Sunday, but right by the front porch is this um, is this tomb and, and this little plaque and tells you a bit about it. It's a fascinating moment. So thanks for inviting us, Amy. You're welcome. I thought you'd enjoy it. And here we are now, seamlessly moved into Healy Church. Yes, and it's a lovely church. Um, been reordered fairly recently and it's a really fab place and it's really great that we're indoor with someone that I would call a personal friend. Indeed. Lovely to see you, Amy. You see, yeah. Give us the bio, Ben, and then we'll see exactly where we are. Absolutely. So, Amy, it's good to have you with us. So, Amy Hole grew up in Liverpool and Cambridge before going to Edinburgh University to study English literature. 
She met her husband Toby at Law College in London and worked as a solicitor and then a legal researcher specialising in employment law. They've both been in Sheffield since 2010 when Toby became vicar of St Chad's in Woodseats. Amy later became ordained herself. After serving two years of her curacy at St Timothy Crooks and the Vine in Sheffield, she has just become curate in charge of Healy Parish Church in Sheffield, which is where we're sat now. She also teaches Greek and biblical studies at St Hild and writes Bible notes for Scripture Union. So quite a varied, interesting sort of backstory there, Amy. Well, thank you. I, I did feel quite old, actually, when I was going through it all. That's the difficulty with writing bios, isn't it? You're just reminded of how old you are. <laughs> And we were saying as well off off um, off air that we're part of the Woodseats Mafia. A few people from Church House That's live right. in that area. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm still living in Woodseats, although Toby's now working for the diocese. I believe your colleague, in fact. Um, but yeah, so we're still living there till my curacy comes to an end. Fantastic. And I remember that you ordained as a priest uh, last summer. Yes. So that I don't know if that's gone by quickly that time. It's yeah. It does feel like it's gone past quickly yeah yeah can't believe it really the last two years so much has been packed into it um yeah i wanted to say just a very light-hearted question with yourself and toby is it um are you sort of making the most of reverend and reverend on the sort of postal stamps addressed funnily enough i don't know really if we have you know but uh yeah you don't get enough posts these days otherwise we would be making more of it but yeah reverend and reverend the right, any, no, neither you write reverends or anything like that, just reverends. Not yet, hold on. Stay is there. Toby Reverend <laughs> Cannon, though? Oh, he is, yes. Because of the cathedral. Yes. Yeah, so he probably outranks you still, I think. <laughs> but your curate in charge here, which I checked today, there's not many of those about, is there? So how has that sort of come? It seems to be one of these things that's happening in the diocese at the moment, that there are not posts made, because that would be the wrong thing to say, but there are posts that are occurring as we go through this sort of renewal and, and, and transition stage in the, in the upset of the dice. So curate in charge, what, what did that mean and how did that come about? Yeah, th it is quite a new thing. So I believe the, um, the diocese just started doing it last year. Um, <clears throat> and I think for various reasons, you know, for, for some people, I think it was actually they needed to move on from where they were. It wasn't the case of me. Um, but it, the, the advantage of it is that I think as a, as a curate, um, it gives you that opportunity to see what it's actually like being the one in charge, even though the church wardens are obviously really the ones in charge. Um, she says but... that because I used to be a warden <laughs> when she was a curate elsewhere. So, yeah, that just putting that <laughs> disclaimer out there. Wardens are not in charge anyway. <laughs> um, but, yes, yeah, so, so it's, you know, just brilliant experience, extra experience when you're still training, still under supervision. You've kind of able to put a toe in the water and think, oh, yes, I've got to make a decision about that or I've got to get my head around how to lead a PCC or whatever it is. It's that kind of next um, stage up. So I, I'm certainly, I haven't been here very long, about a month, but I'm certainly really appreciating the opportunity um, to have a go at that. Um, so, yeah, it's not for everyone and, you know, it doesn't, <clears throat> it's not, yeah, I think the, the diocese will perhaps do it where it's appropriate but not you know it's it's a good thing i think yeah it's meaning that you can you can see if this fits for you they can see if you can fit and in the case like yourself and again we interviewed um, ben's boss the other day and and we did say what a wonderful boss what a wonderful boss but n knowing you you're, you're capable enough to hold this situation but you still could have to wait so it's just putting the right people in the right places and i think that's one of the good things that's happening in the diocese at the moment is that 
it's not so strict that this has to be the way forward. So the right people in the right places can be moved. And, and are you feeling a month in that this is working for you? Oh, completely. Yeah, definitely. It's It's been a brilliant experience. And I'm really grateful and happy to be here. <clears throat> I didn't originally know it was going to be um, possible, um, but um, they didn't get any applications, strangely, for their, when they were advertising for an oversight minister. So it, it's like the, the, the opening just emerged and it, it felt like a really God-given um, opening for me and hopefully for the church as well. Just quickly, just one thing we always try and um, stay on top of in terms of certain buzzwords is just to assume that our listeners uh, aren't Doing aware. Doing the Rory Stewart might role mean. there, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so oversight ministry, it's um, something that's sort of been taking off in the diocese here. Just tell me a bit about what an oversight minister, what does the role mean and what does it do? Mm. Yes, well, obviously I'm not one yet, um, but <laughs> it's uh, it's getting away from the old model where you've got you know a vicar in charge of everything that happens in a particular church. Um, you know, you'll be aware that as a diocese, um, we, we have to move on to the future where that's not always going to be possible or even ideal because actually what we want is for um, lay people and other people to be raised up to be able to do ministry. It's not all about one person in charge doing it all for everyone else. Um, so an oversight minister <clears throat> is basically someone who is is in oversight so a kind of little kind of mini bishop i suppose over um you know one or two or three churches um and um watching over and and raising up um kind of focal leaders in each individual place um i hope i have said the right thing there <laughs> i won't get in trouble with my husband <laughs> no absolutely it's, um you know it's, it's easy to a lot of phrase like that we're very much used to now um in church house as a diocese but i think it's just um being ready to articulate what that means to people who might not be sort of familiar with those terms as much. Um, so a month into the role, um, in terms of the location, we're just down the road, obviously from Woodseats. Did that help that you were in an area you were sort of familiar with or did you treat it as separately because it is a sort of a brand new church for you to serve in? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is, I tell you, it's helpful that it, it's a bit nearer than Crooks was. So I don't have quite so far to cycle. That's been really good. Very good. Eco-friendly, we'd like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> um so so it's nice that it is quite close but it although i was kind of familiar with parts of healy like you know where ponswood is on the on the main road i hadn't really ventured up this far and certainly the parish itself is massive it covers sort of arbathorn and norfolk park areas i ha still haven't yet explored um so yeah it is a, a case of getting to know a new area definitely which i love it's really interesting uh, you know it's great being able to you know, immerse yourself in new parts of Sheffield. And get to know the congregation here and people in the parish. What are some of the the main concerns and needs you've noticed? I noticed that um, operator food bank here, as I came in, I saw that that's a, a big part here. What are some of the things you've noticed? Yeah, it's it's a much more um, deprived area, if that's the right terminology. Um, and um, so there there are a lot of needs. And so I think one of the things which... I'm really most excited about is the um, clothe, clothing bank unicycle. Um, so old school uniform, basically recycled. Um, and our administrator here, you know, with, with, with friends set that up. Um, but it means that people who can't afford school uniform can come and get um, secondhand school uniform really cheaply. Um, 
but also you know the people who aren't quite so well off aren't quite so badly off um, can come because they they're into recycling so Healy's a bit got a bit of that nature to it as well um, and you don't know who's who so it's it's, it's great for people who, who perhaps want uh, want to be anonymous and again given that background and and getting to know people and getting to know those needs what was the moment like when you're preparing sort of for your first main service here what was that like in terms of constructing that sermon putting it together and delivering it to you know in some cases brand new people really strange <laughs> so so my first sunday i didn't have to do anything apart from get um what did they do to me it wasn't licensing it was um I couldn't remember what the word was because we were here. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was going to say licensing or something <laughs> happened. There was a lot of cake. Yes. I think it was a cake service as much <laughs> as anything. There was a lot of cake. There was a lot of cake. I wasn't, yeah, I'll, the word will come to me. I wasn't licensed, but I was um, commissioned. Commissioned, that's the one. Um, and it was Cafe Church, hence the cake. Um, and it was really nice, actually, to be part of that, you know, lovely, diverse group of people. It's a very diverse church. Um in lots of different ways um and yeah it was fun uh i enjoyed it and i just had to be commissioned so my next sunday was the one i first preached at and yes you're right it is a bit hard going to somewhere completely new and you don't yet know what people's needs are or, or you know i think you just have to trust that the spirit will lead you in the right way as you listen to the scripture and listen to the spirit and I prayed that it would be of relevance. Um, yeah, but it was, it's a real joy to start preaching here. So that sort of brings us on to the fact that you were a vicar's wife for quite a period of time. You know, Toby was, was vicar of St. Chad's uh, and you spent the time as the vicar's wife and then made this move. So was that a long-term decision? Had that been coming a long time? Was it because Toby was moving on that you came into that in your own? What was the process in your own mind as you sat there? As And I know you're not a typical vicar's wife, you know, that sort of BBC presentation of one. But what was that moment like as you started to realise your own vocation? In oh, gosh. I mean, it's been such a process. So there, there wasn't any one moment when I suddenly woke up and thought, I think I want to be ordained. <laughs> it was definitely more of a process. Um, so, I mean, I suppose... From, for quite a long time, I felt like I was called to preach. So um, very early on in my teenage years, in fact, um, I was taking part in this project um, of writing out the Bible. Um, so all around the country, people were uh, in churches, were lined up and had to write a verse each, you know. And my verse was 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, which is about following the way of love and be eager for the gifts of the Spirit, especially the gift of proclaiming God's message, it says in the Good News Bible, or prophecy, it says in other versions. And that really stuck with me. And it's interesting when I heard you talking with Amanda Barraclough about writing out the this gospel. And I thought... Yeah, the illuminated gospel. Yeah, I thought, you know, that really had an impact on my journey of vocation. So... You know, let's pray those kids or whoever it was who wrote out that gospel will similarly be impacted by those verses. But anyway, that that verse had a an impact on me, and I think I it kind of resonated with a sense that I had that I was called to speak God's message to people. Um, so anyway, later on, I kind of uh, felt this calling to preach a bit more insistently when Toby was a curate in in London in Islington. So I started preaching 
And then when we moved to Sheffield, uh, gosh, 13 years ago, um, uh, the bishop made it clear to me that if I was going to be preaching, I should really do some reader training. So I thought, okay, you know, and I absolutely loved it. So I did my reader training. I was um, licensed as a reader, still no idea that ordination might possibly be on the cards. Um, <clears throat> enjoyed uh, preaching and leading worship as a reader. Felt I ought to do a bit more study if I was going to be um, preaching and um, and so forth. Um, so, I, so I went signed up for an MA at St. Hild in Theology, Mission and Ministry. Um, and really, I think it was during that first year of my studies that I felt God spiritually stretching me like a bit of elastic. <laughs> I was stretched in so many ways. Um, and it just gradually dawned on me that God wanted something more of me uh, or was inviting me to more. And there were lots of elements that fed into that. So um, I bumped into a friend um, just in the supermarket and she said, oh, I had a dream about you last night. So oh, that's interesting. You know, um, in this dream, I, I gave you a shepherd's staff and um, you took it and uh, we put it into the ground and it went really deep. And, you know, it was one of those uh, dreams at the time. I took it as an affirmation that this path that I was on of doing extra study was the right one. Um, but with hindsight, I thought, yes, this shepherd's staff, the, the sort of symbol of pastoral um, leadership was something that God was handing over to me. And um, as I, you know, took the initiative and planted it, it would take root and it would go really, really deep. So actually that was a really profound moment in my journey um, to where I am now. Um, but other things, so a friend of mine died in her early 30s. And I think when when someone dies, it makes you take stock of your own life and you start thinking, am I doing what I could be doing with my life, you know, is is there more I, I, I perhaps could be doing as a Christian? Um, I don't know what else. I, I, I gradually felt a little bit dissatisfied with my work, which I'd been totally happy with um, up to then. So there are lots of things that kind of coalesced together that made me just gradually get this really heavy sense that I was called to full-time ministry and um, I'm such an internal processor that I basically was thinking about all this by myself. And just one day I said, I thought, I've got to tell Toby. So I said, Toby, I think I'm called to full-time ministry. <laughs> and it was like totally out of the blue, <laughs> which is a little bit of a shock for him. Um, but we talked about it and I explored and it just all snowballed from there. Um, and it just feels so right. So, And that element of dreams and interpreting dreams, that's very biblically focused. Like as soon as you mentioned that, uh, Joseph sort of came to mind. And I think that's quite a powerful sort of image, really. I mean, it really is. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have very many dreams myself, not of any sort, really. <laughs> not ones that I remember. Um, so I think when, when someone else has a dream for me, I'm going to listen. Or if I have a dream that feels significant, I'm going to listen to it because I think God does still speak through, through dreams. And I, I sort of said jokingly at the start about the reverend titles and talking about that. But was that a strange moment? You know, the first time you, you added reverend to sort of the prefix to 
an official document. Was that quite an interesting moment? Well, I don't know really. I mean, obviously it's a bit funny, a bit strange. I think, I suppose the more impactful moments for me have been the the more spiritual ones. So when I was ordained um, deacon the first time, I just found that incredibly powerful. Uh, you know, having um, Bishop Pete put his hands on me and just the sense of the spirit really present. I, f- I found that hugely overwhelming. Um, I still haven't quite got used to the idea that I'm ordained, probably. <laughs> you know, I should probably be a bit more authoritative and reverent and <laughs> one of those things. <laughs> um, but uh, I am I believe I'm where God's called me. And it feels like the beginning of a journey as opposed to, right, that's it now. You know, let's see what God has in store over the next years. And that can be a powerful witness to others as well. You know, if you're speaking to others, thinking about ordination, the fact you've had that spiritual moment several times and we're called to ministry can help encourage others too yes i hope so there's no one way to ordination or or leadership of any description or vocation in the church we're all called in different ways because we're all unique Um, but i really do actually feel quite passionate about helping other people find their vocation not just to ordination at all to all sorts of things I, i i love raising people up and helping them to you know, find find their way, the way that God's calling them. That's really inspiring to hear. It's really fantastic. It is. It's a fantastic story. So going right back then. So, you know, you're married with Toby. You've, you're in a Christian setup. Ordination is something that's around you. So you're thinking about that. But starting from right back there, the young Amy, did you see a Christian road ahead of you or were you brought up in a non-Christian? What was the, the household like as you were growing up? Yeah, so funnily enough, ordination was also in my childhood because my parents are both ordained in the United Reformed Church. So I grew up in the URC um, and uh, at quite a young age, I, I, I felt a deep connection with God Um when I was about 10, we went on a family holiday to Iona, the sort of island off the west coast of Scotland. And they've got an ab- a really ancient abbey there where they still have services and so forth. Um, and I had a really profound experience um, when I saw my sister being prayed for um, after an evening service. And I just suddenly realised that God wasn't just something in my head, but God was someone out there someone apart from myself, someone who had a separate identity, as it were. And I just found that totally overwhelming. I ran out of the the abbey and I looked up at the night sky, which was black and full of stars. And I just had this overwhelming sense of how big God was. And I just said, God's so big, he's so big, he's so big. And I was just crying. And my mum came out to find out how I was. And I don't know if she knew what to make of it, really. But I, I just ran off and I was just sobbing. Um, but that really, really stayed with me, that sense of God being so big and just greater than we can possibly imagine. Um, so that was really profound. So I would say, you know, from that age, I had a real sense of joy in God um, and closeness um, with him. Um, and then I entered my teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and about the age of 16, I think, I'd, I suddenly felt like my faith, I don't know if crumbled is the right word, I just felt like the, the rug had been pulled out from under my feet. Um, and I think this is quite a common experience for adolescents, because in every sense of the world, word, you're, you know, you're going through um, 
uh, trying to find your own identity and questioning the way things have been for you. So I just remember sitting in church, just feeling like I was removed from everything that was going on at the front. Um, it was really difficult because, as I said, I had had this really close relationship with God. And I remember going for a walk um, nearby where I lived and trying to pray about to pray to God about this. And I thought, I can't pray to you, God, because I don't believe in you anymore. Um, and that was it was a really difficult um, time. Um, so that was a real sort of faith crisis for me. Um, I kept going to church until I went to university. And then I thought, you know, it's hypocritical to go to church. I'll stop. So I didn't. And, you know, life went off the rails in all sorts of ways. I won't necessarily go into right now. Um, and then when I went back for my second term, um, I just thought, I'll, I'll just go to church. And so I went to this local parish, Church of Scotland church, near, nearby where I was living. Nothing out of the ordinary about it at all. I just sat at the back and I just wept because I felt like with all my questions, I felt this was home. And I still had lots and lots of questions, which I carried for years. Um, but I just had that sense, this is where I was supposed to be. Uh, so, yeah, um, I forgot what your question was now. <laughs> I'm just well, kind of no, going we've, on we're, all, we're all gone now. <laughs> <laughs> we're all going. It's, it's just it's an extraordinary story. And I think it's, it's a story that people need to hear because this happens so often, doesn't it? Teenagers. I know Theo, my, one of my sons, you know, and um, when they were at Le Leeds Uni and they would welcome students, so often it was second or third year students that had done the first year, done the stuff, and then suddenly found their way home to a God that didn't care about what had happened, mm. but wanted to see where they could go oh, to. And I think yeah. it's, if, if parents are out there listening now and their kids go off to university, we do have to let our kids go. We do have to, we continue to pray for them, but we do have to believe that there is a God that will call them home, don't we? And it's a profound story. I'm going <laughs> well, no, I think I think it's interesting and it's, it's a difficult time as well because they're very much that age, whether at university or not at that age, it's a very formative time. You're going out into the world, learning more about it. So I think it's powerful that you have that discovery and that either finding of faith or returning to faith. Um, I know on the intro podcast I was talking about, it was when I was at university, I sort of came back. I hadn't left faith, but I came back to it and looked at it again and reflected on it more. So I think um, that's just a really interesting aspect to it as well. Mm. I mean, for me now, I feel, I mean, there's more to it. I'll let you have the rest of the story in a minute if you want. Um, but for me now, I'm I'm almost grateful that I had that experience because it helps me to identify with people who have found themselves doubting faith or doubting God because of what they're going through or, or for any reason, really. Um, but I, I feel, I suppose, having been through the chasm and out the other side, I, I just know that I know that God has held me through it all. Um, and that's quite a powerful thing to know for those times when you are going through a dry patch or or um, or worse. You can absolutely have the, the faith and confidence that God is holding you nevertheless. So what was the next step then in that journey? What happened next? Um, I suppose the... Uh, went through several years of just sort of finding my way um, and uh, met Toby at Law College 
um, eventually decided that's what I was going to do in my life. <laughs> it took me quite a while to get there. Um, and if nothing else, that's where we met. So it was worth it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I met Toby and we were just friends to start with, really. So he took me along to his church, which was um, a big um, evangelical charismatic church in Greater London. Um, and I went along and I hated it to start with um, because, um, I don't know, it just rubbed me up the wrong way um, and started going out with Toby and the vicar, or the curate then, who then became the vicar, um, invited me and Toby to go along and help on this Alpha Away Day week thing he was running for another church. And I'd never done Alpha, I knew nothing about it, apart from that I was very um, sceptical about charismatic um, churches. So this would be the Holy Spirit Day. Exactly. Or the Holy this Spirit is the Holy Spirit Day. Weekend, day. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know why he asked me, apart from the fact that I was going out with Toby, who was obviously the one who really knew what he was doing. <laughs> uh, so I went along uh, to this day and we had a kind of, you know, staff meeting beforehand, me, Toby and the curate. <laughs> And at that point, I was a little bit hungover from the night before. And I said, oh, I just don't get any of this stuff. I think it's all, you know, peer pressure. You know, people just get catch what the people next to them are doing. And they think this is a good idea. Anyway, totally sceptical about the Holy Spirit thing. And anyway, um, as we went through the day, it got to a stage where the curate was going to give a, um, get us all to pray. So he said, if you want to, you know, stand there and close your eyes and hold out your hands and I'll just say a prayer. And and as we did this, I thought, OK, I'll just do this. And and I just felt something happening physically. I could feel my heart sort of beating a bit faster and my eyelids starting to flicker and my breathing getting a bit deeper. And I thought, OK, OK, God, if this is you. OK, let's go for it kind of thing that wasn't what exactly what I prayed but along those lines um and and so it did it went deeper my breathing got deeper I just felt absolutely flooded with light um like, almost like gold was just pouring down all over me and I ended up on the floor and the funny thing was I was the only one <laughs> so nobody else in the church <laughs> and if nothing happened to them they were just kind of looking at me on the floor thinking what's what's gone on there um and I mean, it was a, obviously a phenomenal moment, a moment of great healing for me and a moment that, again, I couldn't argue with. I, I just thought, OK, I did not manufacture that. There was no peer pressure involved. <laughs> and, God, you know, God had just done it. So, again, it just um, resurrected my faith that God was someone outside of myself and um, not some something I manufactured but yeah so that that was a, a huge turning point I suppose for me. There seems to be like a, a pattern here of, of, of you meeting God in in an extraordinary way that just brought you on to the next stage of who you are with him you know as a young girl university uh, that experience of, of God really turning up for when you needed him to turn up which is a great witness to people that God actually does turn up. He doesn't turn up in our time, does he? He turns up in his own time, and that seems to be a real recurring story. Um, so post that, 
Toby then, did, was Toby wasn't going for ministry at that point? Um, no, no. So um, we were both training for being to be solicitors and we both qualified. I went into employment law. He went into pubs and licensing. Very, very seedy. But, you know, that was... <laughs> in the streets of Soho with Toby. Yes. A whole new, that's a, a new podcast series. Sounds like a song title. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the streets of London and we don't want to go there. Yeah. Um, and we both practised for three years. And during that time, he felt he needed to pursue this sense of calling. So he went from there to train at Cambridge, um, at Ridley Hall. Um, and I then moved to my... Next job, um, having been a solicitor, I kept on in employment law, but was in a job where I was writing about employment law uh, for a kind of subscriber service, um, researching, editing um, handbooks and journals. So a journalist, just like you, Ben. <laughs> well, not quite like you, but, you know, um, uh, about employment law. And I, I did that for 17 years. So I could work from home and work part-time so when we moved to Cambridge um, and then subsequently to London and then to Sheffield I just kept on the same job um, I felt like I was kind of the breadwinner as it were um, and I was able to keep that going through periods of maternity leave as we had our three children um, and then we ended up in Sheffield. And what drew you as a family to Sheffield? I mean you mentioned been here 13 years now what, what brought you here? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting story, really, because we were in London um, and T Toby was doing his curacy in inner city London. Um, but we both felt um, kind of drawn to the north and specifically to Sheffield. I mean, my, my parents lived here for about 10 years after I'd left home. Um, so we knew it a little bit. Um, and um, yeah, this is probably Toby's story, really, but um, he got invited to interview for um, another role in York. And there was one other person who was on the interview, um, a interview candidate with him. Um, Toby decided he didn't want the job and he didn't get it. They offered it to the other guy anyway. Um, and um, the other guy happened to be from Sheffield. So Toby thought, oh, there'll be an opening coming up once this guy moves to York. <laughs> I'll have a little look. So he looked it up and it was St. Chad's and Woodseats. Um, and so Toby wrote to the then Archdeacon um, saying, you know, just if there happened to be any vacancies, you know, bear me in mind, you know. And, and the Archdeacon wrote back and said, oh, I'm really sorry, but we're not recruiting out of the diocese at the moment. So I'll put your details on file. But, you know, it wasn't hopeful. Anyway, Toby ended up extending his curacy because his vicar left to become a bishop. So he stayed on for an extra year or so, um, by which time <laughs> the um, bishop uh, changed at Sheffield and uh, they changed their policy. And um, they wrote to him out of the blue and said, I don't know if you're still interested, but St. Chad's and Woodseats has come up. Would you be interested in interviewing? And there we are. So it, it felt like a little bit of a miracle, us coming here. And then we've loved being in Sheffield. It's brilliant. Yeah. So you did um, further ed at St. Hilds, mm -hmm. Masters at St. Hilds. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that you've gone on to do some teaching there as well. How did that come about? Was was the, the Greek and the Hebrew something that you'd always been working on? Or did that come out of your Masters? Or Yeah, no, that totally came out of my Masters. Um, and again, you know, this 
feels like part of my vocational journey, really. Uh, when I started my reader training um, in 2012, uh, my very first uh, session, I think it was on New Testament, I remember sitting there and looking at the, the tutor at the front and thought, I want to do that. And it was one of those thoughts that just passes through your head before you realise that you've had it. And I told myself off and said, what on earth are you talking about? There's no way I could teach theology. I know nothing. Uh, you know, what an arrogant thing to think and all of that. Uh, but I thought it. Um, and I think that just sort of planted a seed. And when I came to Sheffield, uh, St. Hilda rather, to do uh, my MA, the one thing I knew I wanted to learn was Greek. I just thought I really want to learn New Testament Greek. So it'll inform my preaching and all of that. So I did. I, I absolutely loved it. And um, yeah, the um, my tutor, very enlightened, said, oh, you know, obviously realised that I was very engaged with it and perhaps had a bit of potential. Was that Daniel McGuinness? It or? was, yes. There's a person we should have on the he podcast. He absolutely is. Yes, definitely. Um, but yeah, so so he encouraged me the next year when they did the, did the module again. He said, why don't you just help out a bit with other students? Um try and teach her maybe 20 minutes here 20 minutes there so so I did that and then the next year I ended up running the whole module which was a baptism of fire but I just think you know again this is God's amazing gift I just you know I I love it I love teaching and I had nothing to offer really um and it it just almost I won't say fell into my lap because I think God was in it um and thanks to Daniel as well for delegating. I just think that's a really over, uh, underrated skill, the ability to delegate to other, to other people. Does it help you to look at the New Testament in a new light, having that Greek understanding and background? Did it open sort of new interpretations and new ways of looking at the Bible? Yeah, really. I mean, I think part of it is just the joy of being able to read the New Testament and think this is actually how it was written. And I, I just find that still quite overwhelming and awesome. Uh, in itself and so I, I you know I, I just really like that idea it enhances my sense that I'm getting close to the text I suppose but there are also um, all sorts of ways so and I'm sort of re I'm just struggling to think of an example <laughs> I have used it quite recently in a sermon just can't think of what um, but um, uh, yes there's always ways in which you think um it prevents you making the wrong assumptions if you know what the original Greek is. Um, and it can really open up um, the meaning of a text to, to, to know the original Greek word. Hopefully at some point I'll think of an example and let you know. Yeah, but it's so important, isn't it, that the tone of stuff that we've said, you know, as a post-charismatic or, you know, having had a lot of charismatic years, the stuff that we trotted out as charismatics when... You know, I've listened to you preach. I know that people like it, you, Daniel, and, and, and people like that have, have spoken. And they've brought something out of the text that, you know, was never mentioned in, in previous sermons. You suddenly think, oh, okay. Oh, I know. It's just so... Um, it's, a, it's just a... It brings moment, it, it to light, doesn't it? And you think, oh, wow. So, yes, I'll give you an example. I mean, I preached on the, the feeding of the 5,000 just recently. And um, it, the, all four Gospels talk about the leftovers, these 12 basketfuls of leftovers and I think the thing about the word leftover in English is that it it has these connotations of all the, the scraps and the not very nice stuff you stick at the back of the fridge and throw away after a while you know 
but but the word the the Greek is has is more of a sense of there's more than enough, there's an abundance. Um, so there's no sense of it being second best. It's it's just this overwhelming abundance. Um, all that is left. Um, so yes, so I talked about that, and I talked about how God is not only the God who provides for our needs, but the God who abundantly provides more than we could possibly imagine um, or ask for, as I think it says somewhere else. Yeah, it resonates <laughs> with the wedding at Cana, doesn't it? Because that second batch of wine, which which Grant mentioned in his great way of saying, his mam and his mates got some more, you know. Um, nice scouse accent there, Paul. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I'll have to get an accent <laughs> in. Um, but that second lot of wine, they were amazed at the quality of the wine. It wasn't like, oh, he's got some cheap plonk out now to fill it. He was amazed at the quality of the wine. And I'm presuming that's the same sort of moment there. Yeah, absolutely. I think quite often in Christian life, we assume that, uh, oh, if we try really hard, God might possibly grudgingly, you know, help us out, maybe just give us enough. But to, to have that realisation that God is a really abundant God and his gifts just surpass anything we could imagine is 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 really important, I think, for our faith. Uh, and if we're going to move out and do things that are a little bit risky, we need to have that confidence that God is that abundant God. It's very good to hear for a generosity and giving officer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking of manna from heaven as well, you know, mentioned about that wasn't like leftover bread. It was, um, you know, enough to sustain them and having that abundance sort of left over. And that's looking at us feeding back into the Old Testament there. With the manna, of course, um, you know, they had to just collect enough for the day, but there was always enough. Um, they didn't need to hoard it. I think, again, that that really speaks... We're just trying not to break into song now from that particular hymn, which might set us off. <laughs> we, we, we haven't talked about hymns for a little while, favourite choruses. We might ask that in our questions in a minute. Yes, good idea. It's, it, it's a fascinating chat, and I think we could chat for a lot longer. It, it's been really, really interesting hearing your story, how God has, has picked those moments to really pick you up and move you on to the next, next level. Um, so you've been here a month. You're obviously enjoying it. I can see that you're enjoying it. It's a lovely building. Um, it's, it's it's a really it's an interesting part of the city to be. So, over this year, have you got things ahead of you that you really want to get into, or are you just seeing it as it comes at, at the moment as you started here? Yeah, I mean, part of it is seeing as it as it comes um, as a curate and as someone in my first year here. Obviously, I'm not going to be going about changing everything. <laughs> I'm sure my congregation will be delighted to hear. Um, but there there are some things. So I know that one of the things that um, they wanted a new leader to be able to do here is to help them move further in prayer. So I've um, planned a sermon series coming up starting this Sunday, in fact, um, on, on prayer, um, what the nature of prayer is, hopefully to encourage us all to move further in that. Um, it's a community um, that is really engaged, the church is really engaged with the community uh, in all sorts of ways, which is brilliant. And I think the church also wants to think, you know, how do we capitalise on that is possibly the wrong word to use. But how do we um, help people to move further into faith and not just have constant barbecues for, for the, the locals or, or whatever it is, you know. So that'll be an interesting journey to go on, I think, um, with the church. There's lots for me to learn. So I just, you know, 
Got my first PCC coming up. <laughs> That's the look. <laughs> when the rubber hits the road. <laughs> I think if we're going to get onto some of the sort of more lighthearted questions, um, I've mentioned hymns already, but I am also interested to know in terms of when you're leading a service and you put together the sermon, in terms of choosing the hymns, do you tend to go for the ones that are favourites or are you led by the particular scripture reading for that week? How do you go about selecting them? I mean, I don't really select the hymns. <laughs> there is um, a very, very competent worship leader here who um, has got a great database. He is going to send me his database at some point. So, I, yeah, I, I have made suggestions of things that I feel would be appropriate um, by way of response to my sermon or, um, or whatever. But, but yeah, um, I think it's always good to go for that thematic approach. And, and also, I think as you consider the shape of a service, I'm very keen that, you know, you start with praise um and you end with also something that's quite praisey and good to go out on and the more reflective parts can come in the middle but yeah it's just i thought as i don't know if you'd be tempted to having the power to always select them but i didn't realize that that's a misconception the sort of been challenged that it is perhaps more collaborative in terms of how they're selected every church is different but yeah in actually i think pretty much every church i've been at so far no the vine I, I chose the hymns there. Yeah, service leader tends to choose yeah, there, so I chose yeah. this weekend as I was mm. leading, and um, or but I do it. I would do it in the collaboration with the with the the service. So Claire Law, Claire will choose with Nick what songs we want around what she's speaking about. So I know you're well read. Question that we're always asking: What's on the bedside table at the moment? You've just been on holiday, so what did you read on holiday? <laughs> okay, um, I mean. I suppose for relaxation, I'm a massive, massive sort of crime thriller reader. <laughs> uh, so currently on my bedside table is a book called Uncle Paul by Celia Framlin, which um, I, ha I haven't got very far with yet, but it was written in the 1950s. And I think recently discovered. Um, I've seen this somewhere. Yeah, you've probably yes. seen it in Waterstones, I, yeah, I, I think expect. I have, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I'll let you know how it was when I finished it. Um, one of my colleagues at Thomson Reuters, where I did my research and writing job um, was Mick Heron, who um, has written a load of um, thrillers um, and including the Slow Horses um, series. Oh, what a great series that was. Yeah. Was it Disney Plus I, or it Apple? It was Apple. Or Apple. Apple. So yeah. I haven't, we haven't got Apple, so I haven't watched any of it, um, but I've got all of his books. Gary Oldman played the part. Yeah, it was that's a great right. Series. Yeah. yeah. I just, so I've got all of his books and um, I feel really proud of him, actually, because when I knew him, he was just my sub-editor, you know, trying to do a little bit of writing every evening you know and then he, he managed to just get that kind of breakthrough moment where he was able to give up the day job and do it full time so yeah follow his career with interest um and I, in a sort of more kind of theological note I've been reading a book um about um theology of autism so it's called Peculiar Discipleship by um, Claire Williams, who is herself autistic. Um, and that, yeah, I haven't finished it, but that's been really interesting because I think uh, it, it, we have quite a bit of neurodiversity in our churches. Yes, um, we do. Yeah. And people's families, my family even. Um, and I think it's quite easy sometimes for autism to be seen as a as a bit of a tragedy, you know, a real struggle um and obviously that there's this sort of 
um, attempt to kind of see it more of uh, celebrate it more I suppose as being we're all different and there are some people who are neurodiverse and this is you know how they might experience the world but uh, what's interesting from reading her book is she says yes there's, there's this more celebratory way of looking at people you know everything everyone everyone's characters and, uh, and everything about people are a gift of God but still there's an element of suffering often with people who are experiencing autism uh, and what do we do with that um, theologically anyway uh, again I haven't finished it yet but it but it, it's, it's it's got me thinking it's been good to see more churches have been putting on neurodivergent services which I think has been really important for awareness and also is that taking away assumptions of how people might perceive services or not assuming that people will be aware of how they go about I think that's been good to sort of raise awareness of that yeah absolutely I think it, it that is a really good um, turning point I suppose in the church um, I think that the challenge is that every neurodiverse person is different they're all diverse um, and so I think part of our responsibility as it were is to listen to people so one person's experience and expectations and needs might be completely different to another's you know, and the godly and the grace thing is to listen. You've grown up in Liverpool and Cambridge. Um, perhaps a cruel question, but which did you prefer? Well, I was only in Liverpool till I was about six. Uh, I did have a Scouse accent, a proper Scouse accent. <laughs> More Scouse than Grant Naylor? <laughs> <laughs> Don't know, probably not. <laughs> uh, but I did support Liverpool. I remember that much because I've got a photograph of me with um, uh, a football um cake and I was there when Liverpool won the I think it might have been the European Cup yes uh, I, I remember too. seeing them sort of process through the streets uh, but I don't remember very much about my time there um, Cambridge was was a, in retrospect a wonderful place to grow up um, at the time I think I felt it was a bit like living on a film set because it's so beautiful you know and it's full of tourists and full of students so as a townie you feel a little bit left out sometimes <laughs> when did the Scouse accent go then that's what I'm interested to hear yeah, I mean, probably quite soon, but um, there were one or two words that just stayed, like the word merciful stayed for ages because it's not a word you use very often or hear very often, but it kind of stuck in my vocabulary. So I was merciful for ages. <laughs> Does any slip out still in sermons, any scouts? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Amy, it's been fantastic to see you and thanks so much for sharing and sharing so widely. It's a really, really great story and... Uh, I hope that story will bless many people out there. And we wish you well with um, the rest of your curacy here. You know, it's early days, but it's great to hear how positive it's been so far and your plans for the future. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs>